0: welcome to episode 353 of the reformed brotherhood i'm jesse and i'm tony
1: and we are proud members of the society of reformed
0: podcast hey brother hey brother It's the summer of prayer still. We're working through the Lord's Prayer. And I'm pretty stoked about this particular phrase that we're going to talk about today because it is the most amazing, perfect combination of law and gospel in a really short number of words. And it's speaking my language professionally, all of which we'll get to. We're getting to that phrase that when you're in a place and you are together (laughs) with the Lord's people and you are saying the Lord's Prayer out loud with one another, that you generally try to mumble through or go, forgive us our debt debtors until, <laughs> so we're getting to that point. We're, we're gonna address all that stuff. We're gonna talk about what is the definitive word to be used here, or we're gonna answer all those questions and possibly a whole lot more. But the questions that we need to answer first are what are we affirming with and denying against on this episode? So let's just go negative first and we'll just end at the, the height of frivolity and joy. So what are you denying against?
1: Uh, this is a pretty straightforward one. I'm just I'm denying rain. I'm really sick of rain. It's been it's been alternating between like roasting hot temperatures and torrential downpours uh, in my state here for probably, I don't know, three weeks. So it's like you walk outside and it's like 100 degrees and your skin is blistering. And then like a second later, and of course, you didn't bring your umbrella because it was 100 degrees out and sunny. A second later, you're swimming on your way to work. So yeah. I'm just denying rain. I've just had enough of it. I mean, we, we need it. I mean, that's like the obligatory next thing you have to say is like, we really needed the rain, but, uh, and we did like this area was in a, a drought cycle. Uh, so I guess that's nice that we don't have to worry about that, but I just, I'm ready for it to stop being wet everywhere.
0: The rain denial is classic. Of course, it always has a place in our conversations and you're right. It is the kind of denial, especially as christian people where we always qualify it with but of course like god sends the rain he allows it to rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous and of course we need it so you're right it comes with that obligatory edge of saying of course we know we need it but we've talked about this before when we talk about this now i just want to drop this here again for everybody to consider and again one more time for those in the back and that is there is like so the the blessings of god the promises of God have this lovely and amazing, pragmatic, practical element to them. They're not just theological, not just for our consideration. They're not even just like spiritual sometimes. And for me, the promise that comes through Noah with the rainbow is one of those. When you're having this kind of like sequential cumulative when one might think, is this going to flood us all out? Is this literally going to drive up all of us out of the world? And yeah. it's something that you don't have to worry about like you actually don't have to worry about that now Well, of course there are major weather events involving water that cause some kind of regional geographic flooding this kind of a mass punishment we don't have to worry about in that way so i always think about that when it rains consecutively and people talk about they always like to make the jokes like oh i had to get in my ark today to come to yeah, work yeah. and you want to be like stop it stop it no no you didn't and you will never ever have to. And for that matter, if you're looking for, so to speak, that modern arc, I think what you're talking about is baptism. So let's come and get you baptized. (laughs) The The funny part about this that the listener doesn't hear
1: is that I reached over to my bookshelf to grab a book and lost the headphones for a second. And all I heard when I came back is, I think you're talking about baptism. So let's, I'm assuming it's some sort of reference to arcs and baptism and there you go yeah.
0: listen we could we turn that into a game you're right on point there it's yeah, true absolutely you're What not about wrong.
1: you? what are you denying today
0: i'm just denying against the creativity and the destructiveness of fraud and of course like when we're talking about fraud and usually we're talking about some kind of financial nature we're talking about being defrauded and the thing about fraudsters is they're just relentless right and they're just creative as soon as there are some kind of hurdle to prevent it to accomplishing that fraud then a new one pops up in its place but here's the thing in particular i was thinking about recently because uh, i was listening to a pastor speak about this i thought it was a rather clever way of bringing in this idea of fraud we're all clear about the efforts that we go to to protect ourselves our personal information our accounts and our finances from fraud and from us being defrauded and of course the sneakiest fraud It's the one that's like partial truth. The one that's like social engineering that makes you believe because part of what they're saying is true and then to fall into it. And this pastor in particular was talking about, okay, what about theological fraud alerts? And that I thought was like right in like the wheelhouse, like right in our jam. It's really our preserve of how we always talked about, do you have this muscle memory theology? When you're hearing stuff and you're processing it, are the fraud alerts that pop into your mind that say, whoa, hold on, something not right about this. Like you're trying to purchase 60 Xboxes in North Korea right now. Like what is the <laughs> theological equivalent of that? And really it's about knowing what is counterfeit by being able to tell what is true. As people from me say so many times before, tellers in financial institutions aren't educated on every single iteration of counterfeit that could happen to a particular bill. They're just trained on what the real thing looks and feels like, how it acts and behaves. And by knowing that, every other lesser, every other compromise is very, very clear. So I love this idea. I'm denying against like fraud is so ubiquitous now in our world. And it's so incredibly sneaky, increasingly so. And we have to be on our guard. And this pastor, I thought, made a lovely connection from that idea that we take, we're vigilant in our finances in our personal information identifiable information what about our theology what about what it means our doctrine what it means to be to be true again I, I, we could easily launch into an episode right now on christianity and liberalism right yeah. part of what we're talking about there is creating these fraud alerts for ourselves so that they pop up into our lives on the thing that we're reading or into our minds to say whoa hold on here you ought to check this it's like you know somebody calling us up and again saying like are you in southern florida right now uh, you know, again, like trying to purchase like sixteen cars, and you'd be like, no, that's definitely not me. That's definitely not the truth. It's it's definitely not the right thing.
1: Yeah. Or are are you in Alabama right now trying to subtly undermine the doctrine of the Trinity? Because something like that. Yeah. That that that's a good idea. I I think like I don't know if I was a some sort of like coder or hacker. I would write a computer virus that just like trolled across the internet. I don't mean like trolled, like was a troll. I mean like trolled, like, like fishing trolling, uh, just like trolled across the internet to find heresy and then just like modified the web page So it was like flashing bright red. That that'd be a,
0: that'd be a worthwhile endeavor. I think it would be. And in some ways it proves the point that, you can't vouchsafe that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. We just access so much information and so many things are being said in our own churches, and our conversations. It's incumbent upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be so thoroughly, again, we use this metaphor pickled in the scriptures and good doctrine so that it becomes plain when the counterfeit thing is presented to us or some fraudulent version of that. And again, the danger with fraud is not that it's demonstratively false, but that it's partially true and it leads you into some kind of error or compromise that you never wanted to participate in. So we need that in our own lives. We need to make that a priority. So I guess I'm saying like when we're studying the scriptures, it's also, of course, it's for our benefits, for our feeding, it's for our soul, it's a means of grace. It's also a means of making sure that we have strong fidelity to the truth and can recognize error. So maybe the scriptures itself by default is its ultimate fraud alert. But maybe that's the kind of language we should be using because it helps us to really properly identify and categorize what we're talking about when we see error. And again, it may be error that's unintended, but at least you can say, hey, that's, that's some fraudulent action right there. Well, let's, let's address that. Let's talk about that. And I think that's a, a lovely way in which to conceive it. So dying against fraud and I suppose affirming with to some degree, coming to grips with having some measures of your own, making sure you're vigilant in protecting against fraud. So let's, let's uh, end on a more upbeat note. What are you affirming with?
1: So most people who have been listening to the show will remember that I am sort of on this like productivity slash stoicism slash daily practice kind of a kick. And I've been doing the, I mean, the bullet journal method, I put that in like air quotes because there's no one bullet journal method. There's like the the guidelines or like the directions that are in the actual bullet journal method book. But but I think it's in like the very first chapter where he's like, you're going to do this the way that you need to do this for your own thing. So there isn't any one particular bullet journal method, but I've been doing bullet journaling in, in some form or another since the beginning of the year. And I just finished my first Moleskin notebook, which is actually a really big milestone for me because I've started and then like stopped bullet journaling probably a dozen times. This is the first time I've actually made it all the way through. Not quite all the way through, but I'm gonna start a new one because I'm far enough into the Moleskin notebook that it doesn't make sense for me to start August in this notebook because I'll finish the notebook before I finish August. So I went ahead and purchased the official bullet journal version 2.0 bullet journal notebook which is a leistrum 1917 notebook Ooh, uh, which nice. is not your typical moleskin notebook and if you are interested in bullet journaling i would not suggest dropping i mean it's the the bullet journal notebook is not that much more expensive than a regular moleskin notebook but i wouldn't necessarily suggest dropping a you know the money it costs to buy a nice dot grid notebook you could buy like a cheap one at staples or office depot, office supply whatever you could buy a cheap one um, that has the dot grid for next to nothing i was just starting with that but i'm really i really want to affirm the official bullet journal notebook um, because one of the things that jesse and i've talked about is that there's something about just like a really well put together really nicely designed and high quality like stationary item, and this is one of the best notebooks that I've ever I've ever actually purchased. Um, the paper is very nice. It actually has three different bookmark um, bookmark ribbons, which is really nice because I often find in my current bullet journal. There's a number of things I wanna I want to bookmark. So like I have a habit tracker that I've I've created my own habit tracker. I want to bookmark that. I also want to bookmark the current page that I'm on. And there might be other things like I have a church, a church attendance tracker that I fill out for the church that I would want to bookmark as well. And I only have one ribbon bookmark in a standard moleskin uh, notebook. The other thing about bullet journaling that sometimes people get, um, I don't know, thrown off on or maybe like is a little bit of a, a barrier is. Is if you want to make nice looking, they call them spreads, but nice looking designs for, you know, a a monthly calendar or the habit tracker I'm making, there's a fair amount of like math involved because you have to figure out, all right, if I want to divide this page up evenly, then how many how many boxes do I need in this? And this is actually something that the designer of the bullet journal recognizes is a little bit of a barrier for some people. And this version of the bullet journal actually has the first thing it has is on the inside cover. It actually has like a guideline to say, like, if you want to divide your page up into fourths, then here are the here are the dots that you draw lines on. But then on each page, there's also a number of markers that show you how to divide it up into thirds, for example. Um, so it's it's a small thing, but I'm really looking forward to using this notebook. Um, it, it's just a really high quality. If you're not going to do bullet journaling and you're just looking for a high quality notebook, the Loistrum 1917 notebook is um, is a standard, I think it's A5 is the size, but it's a standard notebook, like what you would think of with a moleskin, but it's a little bit of a higher quality. It's a little bit more Um, rigid, a little bit more flexible and the binding, it actually lays flat where a a moleskin doesn't lay completely flat. So I know that's like a super niche, uh, affirmation, but it, I know there's been a couple people in the telegram chat who've mentioned wanting to try starting bullet journaling. I think it's, it's a great practice. Um, it's really helped me kind of like clarify and have somewhere to sort of like, it's like a context within, to do my thinking like I do my thinking within the context of my bullet journal when I really need to like puzzle through a question or a problem I sit down and I start writing about it in my bullet journal and that really helps to kind of like get it out there that's one of the things I learned from that uh, smart notes process is that the act of writing is actually the act of thinking. And you don't, in a lot of ways, you don't fully think something through until you've actually committed it to words in one format. And when you write rather than just talk about it or think about it in kind of like mental sub vocalization, when you write it out, you actually are taking time to engage the words a little bit more thoroughly. So Check it out. Bullet journal. It's the 2.0 version. I don't know that you can even get the 1.0 version anymore, but this is the 2.0 version. Um, if you are going to do bullet journaling and you've, you've gotten far enough into the process that, you know, you want to keep doing it. This is definitely worth the investment. It's like, it was like 28, $29, which is a little bit more than a standard moleskin notebook, but, uh, it's worth the extra cost to have it. It's very handy.
0: This is one of those affirmations firmly in the category Of what a time to be alive because this itself is a really kind of unique piece of technology. It's Mm -hmm. at least a unique application that has been thoughtfully designed to help with a particular type of journaling and organization. It's great. And as we said before, one of the amazing things about having something that's a nicer tool like this, whether that be a notebook or maybe a nice set of workout clothes, is you're more apt to use them if it's something that you enjoy and it's something that you've invested in. So if you're looking for a lot of encouragement, it never hurts to get something like this. And like we said before, this is the kind of thing that's great. We're always encouraging people, and I myself am always being encouraged to take more notes, to process more regularly, whether that's in form of personal, private, daily worship, or especially on the Lord's Day as you're processing a sermon. I think it's really helpful to write some things down, take that with you, and to make that part of your rhythm throughout the week. It takes... Very little time. and as you said, there's all kinds of studies, a plethora of studies that show that this is the kind of thing that helps us to retain and learn information, to internalize it as it were, like into the essence of our being, so that it actually becomes the kind of thing that we can meditate on. So what a time to be alive where you can purchase something that's really geared toward that end. Yeah, and there's something about um,
1: something about doing this analog that makes a difference. So I before I started bullet journaling, I was doing kind of a daily journaling process in my obsidian vault uh, and it was kind of easy to, it was like easy to pencil whip. There was something about doing it, ironically calling it pencil whipping is is inaccurate, but it was easy to go through the motions without actually engaging. And I think it was because it's so quick, it's so easy to do and it's, you can do it so rapidly, you can type so much faster than you can write. Um, there's something about doing it analog that I think forces you to slow down and really think about it. And I know too, like, I don't have an expectation that anyone's going to like steal my journal and read it. But the fact that it's, it's right there on paper and anyone who picks up this piece of this, this book could read what's there. It makes you think through how you, you write things. And it also is there for you to review in a, a more tactile way. I don't think I've ever gone back to any of the sort of journal style notes that I wrote in Obsidian. I still have them. If I needed to search them, I could. I go back through my paper hard copy um, bullet journal on a regular basis, sometimes because I'm trying to find something like I'm trying to find the page that this tracker is on. I have like a reading progress tracker for the books I'm working on that I've created. I have to find that. I don't have it bookmarked, so I have to flip through. And oftentimes I find I flip through and I see a page that I remember and I reread it. So even just the way that you have to use an analog notebook causes you to be working in the material that you've created a lot more. So if this is a practice you're interested in, I would love to hear about what people think about this, if if people would be interested in doing sort of like a... I don't know like a bullet journaling discussion group to talk about this and how do we how do we modify this practice how do we adapt it for Christian use how do we plunder the Egyptians on this one I think that'd be a really fun conversation for us to have in the Telegram chat there've been like I said there've been a couple people who've talked about possibly doing something and working on this I think it's a process that actually even though it's a self-reflective kind of meditative process, it's a process that works really well to to do in groups as well. To talk about what's working, what's not working, how are you setting up your spreads, what kind of tra- what kind of habits are you tracking? Um, I think that would be great. So, if people are interested in that; they should let me know. But I just think it'd be a lot of fun to look through it. And again, this this is the Bullet Journal 2.0. It's made by Leistrum. Uh, it's just a really nice notebook.
0: I love it. Again, it's great to have amazing tools. That help us to be more faithful in our study of the scriptures that we might again internalize it yeah. memorize it metabolize it and then apply it in all areas of life anything that helps me do that i want to get after so good recommendation you can never go wrong with having a nice notebook especially because with those notebooks in particular you can beat them up hardcore oh, Part yeah. the probably expensive is because they take a beating like they're meant yeah. to be carried everywhere Toss them in a bag, throw them in the back seat of your car, run over them. When you forget them in the parking lot, you'll just pick them back up and you'll just go back to writing. So it's nice to have that as opposed to something somebody might be saying like, why? I could just go to Walmart to get something cheaper. You definitely can. Yeah. The whole purpose of this is that it will outlast and it will take all kinds of abuse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's all sorts of like covers. I actually have a a cover that I use for my bullet journal that also adds an additional layer of like durability. It gives me a little bit more space to store pens and stuff. So yeah, if people are interested in that, I'd love to sort of talk through what it might look like to to do sort of a, a bullet journal chat group to figure out how we're going to do this and what practice we're going to adapt. Just let me know. But, but Jesse, enough about my bullet journal. What are you affirming today?
0: I'm going with a book again and I'm just doubling down. This is kind of like the reaffirmation, the Affirmation Reprise, the Affirmation Remix, whatever you want to call it, because sometimes you and I will have a conversation. We'll say, we just started this amazing book and I definitely affirm it. And sometimes I never come back to it. So now I'm coming back to it because I finished a book that I started and gave an affirmation. And now I'm coming back around and saying, listen, loved ones, this is like, it's got to be affirmation squared or cubed because this is even better than when I first affirmed it. So I'm affirming with this newest volume printed by Banner of Truth. It's John Owen's Gospel Life. And it's 13 sermons that John Owen gave uh, really at the tail end of his preaching ministry. So, I mean, you know, he was hitting his stride and he hits his stride. This is one of those books that just gets better as you go through it. it. It seems to just gather more and more momentum, more and more fire. And, you know, there were times where I would just put it down because there was something so striking that was said. And then there were times I uh, so something was so striking. We said I put it down. And I was like, I think I just need to throw this book into the bushes. Like I was just yeah. so excited, like I couldn't even contain myself. It he goes into great length expositing uh, Micah six eight. Uh, his treatment of what it means to walk humbly before God is bar none the best treatment of that particular phrase I have ever read or heard. And then in addition to that, it ends with some sermons on death and dying and what it means to accomplish those things under Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, some of the best understanding. And interesting in typical Puritan format, he draws from this simple text, uh, which is one of my favorite. It's from Psalm 61, verse 2. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Yeah, And that is the basis for his treatment of what it means to die well. This is 13 sermons you will never regret reading and probably something from each one you will take with you. So I cannot affirm with greater gusto, Gospel Life by John Owen, it's a little treasure. It's a Puritan paperback. It's relatively inexpensive. This is what you do. Go to Banner of Truth or Amazon, buy a copy for you and a copy for a loved one and read it together. You just won't be disappointed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Lord knows we love a good book club, so we could do a we could do a bullet journal and John Owen book club if, if that whets people's appetites even more.
0: There you go. There's lots of crossover there. I would like to think that the Puritans would have great appreciation for the bullet journal. I oh, mean, basically, yeah. they were bullet journal. Like every Puritan sermon is kind of a bullet journal application. Yeah, uh, but not as brief as the typical journal would yeah. like you to be.
1: Well, I, I mean, that's, that's actually probably truer than we intended it to be like the, the practice of a commonplace notebook or a commonplace book yeah. was, was pretty well established and, and pretty much anyone who was a, a man of letters would have kept some sort of commonplace book to, I mean, th- think about it. Like we are so spoiled and in some ways, it, all of my all of my affirmations over the last like 6 months are all just coming together at the same time in some ways we're so spoiled by our ability to just archive and retain information in digital format and pull it up whenever we want but like that wasn't feasible like the the puritans didn't have Logos bible software they couldn't just like search for a quote from Calvin or from Augustine. So they would often, and there was dangers to this, but they would often have these commonplace notebooks where they would, when they found a quote that addressed a topic that they they needed to, to know that quote and have that quote accessible on hand, they would hand copy it into their commonplace book and they would create these, these ways to uh, index and reference so they could find the quotes they needed. That that, you're right. Like that's, that's basically a bullet journal and building a second brain methodology. Right on. So these things that we've tapped into that Jesse and I've been talking about these productivity things, they're not exactly new. They, They might be new. They're like rediscovered things. So Tiago Forte, he, I think he actually would be the one to tell you, like, he didn't discover anything new with this building a second brain. He points to the commonplace notebook as the original the original concept of a second brain in his book. So these are long-standing practices; they go back hundreds and thousands of years, um, and, and it's it's yet another way that we learn from the the men and women of the past, particularly men in these areas. But we learn from the giants of the past whose shoulders we stand on, not just in theological, like explicitly special theology, you know, special revelation matters, but in general grace kinds of matters too. So.
0: Yeah, Common. I love that. Common. So that is going to be the hinge on which I'm going to hang this door that we open up now into the Lord's Prayer. So bear with me just a minute. Let's just go to the scriptures right at the top here. And let's hear again the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. And I'm going to start with, uh, if everybody will grant us, a quick excursus in these two words, trespasses or debt. But I'm going to, of course, betray my perspective on this as you hear me read from Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 9. This is Jesus speaking to us. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, we spoke on that last episode about bread, and to me, the connection here as we roll into this request, which is just a flooring request, is that we need the daily bread so that we might live, and in some ways, I think we need daily forgiveness so that we might not die. And even though that sounds really extreme, I think that Jesus is after that in presenting this as part of the model prayer. So let's talk real briefly at the top then here about these two words. And I'll give my opinion, then Tony, you can give your opinion and we'll, we'll see where we end up as just a way. And if you want to skip ahead, this will be very quick. So just skip ahead like 20 minutes and then we'll catch <laughs> you back up if you don't want to hear about our conversation about these two words and which is the better word and which one should we be using and all that stuff. And common is the hinge here. So I'll get to that in a second. So uh, to me, honestly, it doesn't matter a lot, but it may matter just a little bit. So like Matthew six twelve has the word death, debts in it. Matthew 6.14 has trespass. Luke 11.4 has sins. They're three different English words for three different Greek words. So whether we pray for our debts or trespass or sins to be forgiven, we're praying biblically. I think that's an right. important thing. So I'm not going to divide over this. It's very much an open-handed issue if it's an issue at all. The words mean roughly the same thing, but, and it might be a fairly large but here, they don't mean exactly the same thing. So, of course, like the word trespass suggests that we have violated some kind of rule or committed like an infraction. But the word debt suggests that we owe God something that we cannot pay. So forgive us our debts really suggests that we've done things that we should not have done and left undone things that we should have done. So for to me, uh, as a person who works in finance and understands something about borrowing and indebtedness, here is why I prefer debt in this situation and why I think it is a better frame in which to participate in the Lord's Prayer. Think about a trespass sign. You know, My, my parents, uh, your in-laws, they have a trespass sign on their property. Now, if I do not have permission to be on the property, I see the sign, I go and walk on their property, but nobody knows. Like if a tree falls in the woods, right? Nobody hears me, nobody sees me. I walk away. I've certainly transgressed a law, but there may or may not in that sense give me the idea that there is some something hanging over me because of that infraction. However, If you think about what it means to borrow money, for instance, and if you borrow money and you repay everything except a dollar or a penny, technically you're still in default. They were under that legal obligation. It stands over and beyond you. It's more than just a trespass. It's emphasizing the fact that whether or not there are consequences or that's even observed that there is some kind of burden being accrued behind the scenes, whether or not it's seen. And so because that must be dealt with. And sin is to me much more like debt than it is like a trespass, though it certainly isn't less than a trespass. So here's where the common comes in. Forgive us our, us our trespasses actually really comes more from the book of common prayer, which is why like so many people use that word generally in the Lord's Prayer. The Geneva Bible, the King James Bible all use the word debts. I read from the NASB, which is a more literal translation using the word debts. If you know your church history then you know the Book of Common Prayer was and is still used by the Anglican church. So denominations that came out of that church of England, Episcopal, Wesleyan, what else? Methodist, tend to use trespasses while most everyone else says debts. So it can be a kind of a signaling of church history there, but I'm going to promote and promulgate that as we talk about this, I'm thinking about this as debts for that very reason. So enough for me. What say you? See, I
1: take a slightly different approach to get you? to the exact same answer. So, oh, never mind. Yes, but also, how dare I? Um, <laughs> this is so. This this is one of the things that's remarkable about the Bible, and this is a perspective that I have that's changed over the last I don't know, last maybe year and a half, two years. I'm beginning to be convinced that for the most part, we don't need much in terms of textbooks in seminary apart from the Bible, and then a few a few healthy commentaries on the Bible. And what I mean is this, is that within this very passage here, we have a perfect example of why text, text criticism as a practice is important. So there are some early manuscripts um, that actually utilize the Greek word for trespasses in this passage. Right. So there's some textual basis for this disagreement. It's not just that, you know, the Anglican Church or the Roman Catholic Church or whoever it was, it's not just that they introduced this word. Also, and this is something that most people don't realize when they talk about text criticism, is text criticism includes looking at documents that quote the bible in the early church that are not themselves the bible so the didache for example exactly. when it's paraphrasing and referencing this verse uses the phrase trespasses so very early in the church there was a there was a divergence of understanding of what what the original text said right there was one original text that's the inspired inerrant autograph Then there were copies of that text. Some of them were faithful and some of them were not, right? So in this case, we have two competing, um, competing but totally compatible, as Jesse says, the theological difference in these phrases is minimal. And within just two verses... The same point is made using the other word. It's the exact same word when Christ says, uh, if you forgive others, their trespasses, your heavenly father will will forgive you or will also forgive you. That word trespasses is is literally two verses later. So it doesn't change anything about the theological meaning of the passage. It does add this slight different nuance in terms of what we're praying that uh, is certainly important and is something for us to talk about, but it doesn't change radically this. The best textual evidence that I've seen is that the original word was the Greek word for debts. So for right. me, um, theologically, I, I I agree with you. I actually think theologically, debts makes more sense here. It, it's us asking the Lord not to hold our sins against us, right? Exactly. When when we say to um, to forgive our trespasses, um, that doesn't necessarily release us from a debt in, in like the real world right if If I um, trespass on someone's property, I may or may not incur a debt for doing that. Um, if I if I did not have permission to be on a certain person's property and all of the legal requirements of notifying me that I was trespassing were met, I may not actually incur a debt, right? I, I, they, no one may ever know that I trespassed on that property. Exactly. I may have like a crisis of conscience later and you go to that property owner and say, I'm really sorry. I trespassed on your property. I never incurred a debt, even though I violated a law, right? I never incurred an actual debt. Had I not told them about that, there's, there's no like relational debt that I needed to resolve, but an actual debt must be forgiven or as Jesse's saying, or it stands over you. So in my mind, there is this concrete, um, concrete reality that this phrasing represents that is, is really important to what it is that we're asking for. And we'll we'll unpack that here. Um, but this is a perfect example of why, as I said, why text criticism is important because it's also very easy to understand from a, uh, text critical position, how it is that this word injected itself into the text. Right, Because we have this word literally just a couple lines later. That's one of the most common ways that modifications or, or errors in manuscripts happen is somebody is copying a text by hand and their eye jumps down a line because there's a similar word or there's the same word. Right. And the word forgive... Um, in both cases, is very similar. It's not identical. The word is not identical, and the form is not identical, but it's it's very very similar and similar enough, not only in phrasing but also in theme, that it would be easy to understand how someone's eye may have jumped from one instance of a word to another instance of that same word or similar word and just continued or copied it copied it wrong. So, I'm with you. I think ultimately it doesn't make too much of a difference theologically and. Regardless of the theological difference that there is, which is a real difference, it's still consistent with what Christ is teaching, not only here, but also in other parts of the Bible. So, this isn't a reason for us to get all worked up and all upset. Um, This isn't a King James only kind of a thing. Some people will, I think, foolishly stand on a hill like this and will die over the difference between. debt and trespasses in a particular verse. Um, I just don't think that it's worth doing that. Uh, and I think it, it is kind of funny when you go to a new church and you're not sure, and there's kind of the, forgive us our as we have forgiven. <laughs> like, I think that that's an experience that every Christian who's ever visited another church has. And it's funny because I I never knew that there was another, another way to do this until I was probably in college. Um, you know, I read the Bible, but I, I never connected. I never necessarily connected this prayer that we would recite. And I was in a Lutheran church, so it's more liturgical. The Lutherans tend to go with the "Forgive us our trespasses" um, because of the the ancient church testimony. Um, I never connected that difference with this passage, and never understood that. So when I first went to a church that did a different rendering of this, I was like, whoa, what is happening here? So it's an interesting feature of this particular
0: text that I think is is fun to chat about. And what's presupposed here that's so important is the fact that the law is in play, which is why I think that is the most appropriate representation of what we're being asked for forgiveness from and what we're required to forgive uh, from others. So for instance, by saying, forgive us our debts, Just that as a statement, as a plea, as again, a petition before God, what Jesus is making clear is that the law has hegemony apart from himself, apart from the interceding work of salvation, which he brings and the Holy Spirit applies. So when we think of debt, what that is literally is it's one party's claim on another. This is where there is some good differentiation with trespass, because when we speak of debt, what we're basically saying is apart from Christ— the law has a claim on you because if you have behaved inappropriately, you have accrued against yourself something that you owe to someone else, right. not just like a stack of bad behavior that you is on a list somewhere, but that this thing actually has a claim on you. Yeah, And so need, that claim needs to be broken. It needs to not just be, like you said, absolved, but paid off. We need, the, again, the one who is just yeah. and justifier. That's what we need. And this appropriately tells us our condition, and that is you are under the weight of sin. That sin is debt because the minimum wages of sin are death. So sinners are debtors and we just have no way of paying off that debt. You know, the good news of the Christian gospel that comes right on the heels then, on the rest of that statement is that Christ has canceled that debt for us by suffering in our place. Jesus paid a very high price to secure our salvation. Redemption is an economic word. Yeah. So he takes this punishment that we deserved and he takes it on himself. So that we may experience forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, which leads us then by extension and by good practice and appreciation to forgive the debts of others that they would owe us. The claims that we have on them, we relinquish, we volitionally give up, we yield and submit because we see we have one who has done that. I want to differentiate one thing, and this might be a bit too technical, but I think it proves a point, and I'm curious for your opinion on this. You know, we've just come in the U.S., into a season where up for debate and up for basically legal application was whether or not student loans were going to be forgiven. And I've seen a lot of things that people misunderstand, of course, finance generally, but also I think they misunderstand it in the context of what we're asking for in this petition here. And that is that when the student loan debt was going to be, I was hearing this word forgiven, of course, what we were actually talking about pragmatically and quite literally is not a cancellation or forgiveness of debt, but only a transference. That is, the student no longer has to pay that bill, but somebody else, and in this case the taxpayer, was going to have to foot that bill. We're not talking about transference here. And the difference between the two is that Jesus is the perfect stand-in, the perfect representation. It's not a transference in this case. He is able to cancel the debt. We are able to pray this prayer because he comes and doesn't just pay it off, but represents us as if we ourselves had paid it off and yeah. we receive all of the righteousness of Christ. And so it's as if he not only pays the deed, he is the one that can tear it up. Yeah, And that's the difference. So if this is not transference and I'm being particular there because I'm kind of importing some economic terminology Don't get that twisted with imputation. What I'm basically saying here is this is not like debt in our world. In debt in our world, somebody else will always have to pay because there's nobody exactly like you who's gone through your exact experience, who is like you in every way, but without sin somehow, and therefore can say, I will stand in and pay the debt. And even so, that person does not have superiority over the legal system in such a way that they could say, well, I'm going to cancel this debt and literally tear it asunder, annihilate it, pull it apart, deconstruct it. This is why it's so remarkable that Jesus has us pray in this way, because he is imbuing us with a kind of power that comes from his accomplishment so that his first brotherhood is actually transferred to us so that we might pray this with full confidence, knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because he gets to cancel the debt on our behalf. It's just like mind blowing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, conversations about the, the student loan scenario aside, because um, I think that that's a very complicated question. Uh, it would be interesting, I think, for us to talk about that uh, on a different show about the, the the ins and outs of that. I think I probably take a different approach and understanding of the, the situation than you do. But I, I think you're right. Like Jesus, in teaching us to pray in this way, is also telling us that, his father in heaven has the ability to answer this prayer, right? He's not, he's not telling us to pray a hopeless prayer um, or a a prayer that God somehow cannot accomplish. And I think you're right. It's, it's always a little bit tricky when we, we, uh, we have to recognize, um, when we use this kind of financial um, marketplace language about, you know, redemption and imputation and, and, um uh, reckoning our our sin to Christ's account, we have to understand that that is it's it's improper language, and I mean that in the technical sense. We're using we're using metaphor and analogy um, to explain the reality of what's going on. So it's it's not as though there are actual, log books in heaven that God is keeping track of all of our sin and somehow quantitatively tracking how much we, we are obligated to him and then balancing those books, right? That's that's metaphorical language that not only we use, but the scriptures use. The, the word legitsomai, which is the Greek word for reckon, you know, he, he did not reckon his sin to him. Or in the Old Testament, it says, blesses the man who's um, iniquity is not counted against him, right that that's that's biblical language, but it's language that is expressing um, a metaphorical understanding of what God is doing. Um, maybe maybe a little bit stronger than metaphor. it's not it's not it's not like a um, it's not like a pure metaphor where there's no there's no um, overlap with reality. but we also can go too far, I think sometimes if we use this language in a strict sense. We also have to remember that all of this has to be framed in the context of covenant, and that I think that's the main insight from the Reformed tradition: is that this debt that we, uh, this debt that we incur, is a debt that is accumulated to us by way of the covenant of works. So when Adam sinned, he accrued this obligation of death uh, because that's what the covenant arrangement was if God had not made the covenant of works with Adam in some hypothetical world where Adam Adam trespasses, God probably could have handled that differently. I'm, I'm trying to hedge that in very hypothetical phrases because I don't know how valuable it is for us to entertain like what could have happened if God hadn't made the covenant of works, because he did. Um, but when we ask for Christ when we ask for God and in Christ's name to forgive our debts, what we are asking for is for God not to hold the curses of the covenant against us as disobedient covenant breakers. And so in a certain sense, this language is intrinsically relational. It's not just a financial metaphor, but it's also a relational metaphor. So when I I say forgive us our debts, As I forgive those, I forgive our debtors. You can hear my Lutheran background there. I almost swung in to forgive those who trespass against us. When I pray for God to forgive my debts as I have forgiven my debtors, what I'm praying for is that just as or in light of, not because of, but in light of my um, forgiveness of those who have violated me relationally, that in the same way or a similar way, I'm praying for God to forgive. My relational violation of his covenant. And there is this relationship that I'll be honest, i don't I don't fully understand in God's economy how that relationship works. This is an area of theology that I've always been um, unsure of, But there does seem biblically to be this relationship between us forgiving others and God forgiving us. and i I right. ordinarily explain that in terms of, You know, if I fail to forgive others of the trespasses against me or if I fail to forgive the debts that others have accumulated uh, against themselves in, in our relationship, if I fail to do that, then that proves that I don't really understand the nature of forgiveness. I don't really understand the nature of love. I don't really understand the nature of the gospel, right? That's what the parable of the unmerciful servant is about, right? It's it's, we've been forgiven so much, and yet I still see fit to hold my brother or sister up against the wall by their throat and demand that they repay me this tiny, minuscule amount. But I feel like there's also more going on in the scriptures. And I'm not going to go further than that because I don't really know what that is. But there does seem to be... It's not necessarily a cause and effect relationship. It's almost like a a reverse cause and effect relationship. The lack of forgiving our brothers and sisters or the lack of forgiving others somehow pre- prevents or um I'm I'm sounding very Lutheran right now I'm realizing. That's actually correct. But there's something about this relationship between us refusing to forgive others that somehow I'm, see, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with even how to phrase this. I'm just going to say it, and I hope that everybody Here. gives me a little bit of grace. There's something go. about our refusal to forgive others that somehow prevents God from forgiving us. And of course, a regenerate, justified Christian can never become unregenerate. I'm not a Lutheran. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm not an Arminian, right? A reformed person denies categorically that a person who's been justified by Christ can, can ever become non unjustified. So I don't fully understand how that works, but this is what we're confronted with in the scriptures. And this is this is the hard part. We're we're confronted with it in the scriptures and we're commanded to pray that way. So I I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of rambling because I don't really know where to go from there. So I'm hoping maybe you have thoughts or can explain this to me or can bring us to a different topic that doesn't make me sound so not reformed. I, I fully recognize that like this is not a particularly reformed way to speak, but I don't know how to get around it. I don't know how to get away from it when this seems to be, in many senses, like the obvious sense of what the scripture is saying.
0: I don't think it's not Reformed. It's just we're, in some ways, kind of leaning in close, snuggling up, as it were, to our Lutheran brothers and sisters by saying there is right. a mystical component to this. We understand it to be true, and yet we don't understand exactly how it's true. Right. In the same way that we might say something like, well, works have no room for grace, but grace has room for works. Right. Right. And so it's the same thing is, is happening here. No matter what, to actually quote Luther, I guess, a bit, the context of this petition in the prayer definitely safeguards what Luther called the wondrous exchange. You know, Christ takes our sins, we take his righteousness. And as a result of that, almost because of that, we go out and then we forgive the debts of others. Right. Not because we have to, but because it's already been done for us. How that actually works out we vouchsafe to God himself, that he would continue in our own lives as we plead before him. Because this is a plea, right? We're, we're not just saying like, God, because I am, you have forgiven me. I will go out and do this. We're asking, would you help me? I, I've seen that I am a person that is under a great burden of debt, that there's a claim on my life. And because that has been forgiven and transferred, set free, because of that, I want to make sure that I am also the person that goes out and honors you. And making sure that I forgive others. And this is where we see like God Himself as the source of that redeeming action. He's not like this weird, unwilling, angry tyrant that's like somehow pacified yeah. Yeah. by His son's pleading or like the sacrifice of blood. It's that Christ dies under the written code that stood against us, not in virtue of some arbitrary exchange of roles, but because He, as Messiah, truly represents His people and can therefore appropriately stand in their place. That is the amazing thing here that like God himself through his son has the authority and the right to take debt and not just absolve it, but destroy it so that there is a full cancellation. So that what is nailed to the cross is left there and is destroyed that it dies and is buried in the same way that of course, Moses representing the law can never bring us into the promised land. God buries him. So God also buries the law. It's so to speak in the requirement of its obedience in Christ and with Christ, his son. So when he's risen again, we are set free from that law so that we are saved not by good works, but of course, for those good works. And again, this to me, to my ear, as I read this prayer and as I try to embody and pray it, is what makes it so different. Because anytime an institution, somebody grants a, a loan to somebody else, If the loan is not repaid, somebody must pay it. It it doesn't just go away into the ether. Somebody takes up the burden. But here, what we're saying is it's not that like Christ has to like continually die or continually pay off. He gets to cancel because he is the perfect representation and because he has authority to do that. But he is again both just and justifier. So you're like, you know those examples where somebody be like, it's like you're in a courtroom and you're about to be sentenced, and somebody says like, oh, I'll pay the fine instead. It's actually not like that at all. Right, right. You know, it's, it's totally different. So there, there's so much here to chew on. And we can't even get into like what forgiveness means and how does forgiveness play out. And that could be a whole nother episode. But I think what God is calling us here is to understand what it means to fall under the burden of debt and how we come before him as a loving father. The last thing I want to say about that is I think it's important to know, as you just said, we've emphasized time and time again, this difference between identity and harmony, especially in relationship. And I agree with you that though there's transactional language here, this is not explicitly transactional. It is relational and it's not therapeutic. So there are lots of people in our world who value forgiveness because there's some kind of maybe happy benefit that falls into the realm of therapy. You'll feel better. You'll be able to release it. The person won't have rent-free space in your head. Like, all those things may in fact be true, but they absolutely miss the point. It's an adventure in missing the point of this prayer. And so if you're a Christian, we do not anymore fear condemnation because of Jesus. We, we should not despair. And when we feel guilty about things because our conscience has been pricked, we shouldn't feel as though we are going to be punished underneath the weight of that because in part of this prayer and other parts of Scripture that direct us. However, because, you know, we think of John saying, like, look at how great this love is that we would be called children of God, adopted. Because we are adopted as children of God, when we're saved and justified in that moment, we now have an identity in Christ. And that identity is resolute and immutable. Yeah. But yeah. the harmony that we have with God may be disrupted. And as we start this prayer in these radical terms with Jesus saying, pray like this, our Father, which again, the Jews in that time would never pray like that. In fact, they, they look at Jesus praying And addressing God as father, as him equating himself in some way, as with God. And they're just incredibly offended by this. But what this shows to us is that because God is a good father, fathers can be displeased at times with their children. That is, the harmony of the relationship may be disrupted, even while the identity is preserved and resolute. And so praying that we might be absolved, that we might be forgiven of our debts, is in some way saying, Father, rejo- restore to me the joy of salvation so that I might have harmony with you in our relationship together. So it absolutely suits the, the description that you've just given that we're not asking to like be justified all over again. What we're asking for is to have the most important relationship or should be the most important relationship of our lives restored in such a way that we have fellowship and communion that's unencumbered, that there are no roadblocks, no hurdles, nothing standing in the way that we're keeping short accounts, as Spurgeon would say, because we recognize that all this stuff is accruing against us. Even if we just like live life to the norm and we think that we're being moral and ethical, we're finding that the bill is coming up behind us. Yeah. And just like you go, you can go in any time and take a look at your phone app or go online and see what is the current balance of your credit card Assuming you have when you're using it. You'll see that it is there, And unless it is paid, it accrues, it accrues interest and it comes for you. You can't get out from underneath it. You can't, Michael Scott, this and just declare bankruptcy. So (laughs) it is all about our relationship with God, but it's not this like weird way where we say, like, my creed is Jesus, only Jesus. We're saying, listen, there is an underpinning of doctrine and theology underneath this. I think that's what we're driving at. Like we're creating two sides of the same coin: relationship and doctrine, which drive us before the Father, who is a good father, that says Come and ask for me that you, that I would continue to cancel the debt that is before you. The one that I did cancel, I would apply again and absolve you from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's a good point too, that the theology that we hold has to under, kind of has to under, underwrite this to sort of stick with the financial metaphors is when we pray this, just like any prayer, like we talked about in kind of the opening of this, any prayer is an act of faith like prayer is an act of faith right and when we pray and we ask God to forgive us our debts or to forgive us our trespasses and we affirm we, we positively affirm that he has he he can do this right then we're actually we're actually expressing trust not in God generally but when we understand theologically what the gospel is and how the gospel functions we're we're this prayer is a prayer of faith and trust in Christ. Right. And so Gerhardus Voss is so helpful on this. He has a chapter in volume two of the reformed dogmatics on the covenant of grace that even if you don't read all of his dogmatics, which if you're going to pick a systematic theology to read through, I don't know that Voss is where I would start you. Cause it's, it's sort of weird and technical and, and it doesn't technical. flow. It doesn't necessarily flow the way something else would, but His chapter on the covenant of grace and particularly on Christ as surety is so so helpful. And this is this is again where I think it's not as though the concept of Christ as as surety in some sense is utterly absent from other reformational traditions or even Roman, even Roman Catholic tradition in a certain sense. The Roman Catholic tradition understands Christ as the surety of salvation. That it that it's Christ, of course, Christ who vouchsafes and 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 makes salvation possible, and it's only because of His action on our behalf that that salvation is possible. The Roman Catholics wouldn't disagree with that. The Lutherans wouldn't disagree with that. They're closer to us than they are uh, to Roman Catholics, um, and they're closer to the truth than Roman okay. Catholics. But the Reformed tradition would hold that Christ is the surety of the covenant of grace. And what that means is that Christ is the one who fulfills all of the obligations, all of the obligations that we have in these different covenant arrangements, right? He fulfills all of the obligations that we had in the covenant of works. And the fulfillment of that is the positive righteousness of Christ, right? The the covenant of works required us to positively merit salvation by obedience, it wasn't just don't do this it was also do this there was there was the positive element of that christ accomplishes that and the covenant of grace is is in a very real sense is god establishing christ as the surety of the covenant for us right and so when we pray that God would forgive us of our sins or our debts or whatever word we're going to use here, right? And and since this is a model prayer, although I do believe we should pray this verbatim on a regular basis, I think the scripture, particularly in Luke's articulation of that, Christ commands us to pray these words regularly. So I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's something I feel strongly about. We should pray the Lord's Prayer as it's written on the paper on a regular basis. We ought to. The scripture seems to command that. However, it's also a model for us to follow. So whether we use the word sin, trespass, debts, whatever word we use, when we pray that God would forgive us of those things, of that thing, what we're doing is we're casting ourselves upon Christ as our surety. We're affirming that God has established a way for this debt to be removed from us. Right. And what you said earlier is true, that God cancels the debt— it's also true that debt cannot just be canceled. Some, somebody bears right. the burden of that debt. And while, while in, in the divine way of things, it's closer to a strict cancellation of debt, we also have to be careful. If you go back to our atonement series, we talked, about, uh, we talked about moral governance theory and we talked about new covenant atonement theory. And in both of those models, God more or less ignores the debt that we have against him. Or that he has against us, right? He ignores the debt that we've accumulated against him. In the moral, the moral governance or the moral, um, the moral theory, he establishes this new covenant by which we can merit salvation, even though we haven't, even though we actually don't, right? He establishes uh, the atonement is God providing for the rules to be relaxed. That's the moral governance or the moral exemplar theory the new covenant theory is very similar in that it's an entirely new arrangement where the other arrangement is just discarded right and god That's establishes right. this entirely new arrangement by which we can be saved that is categorically not what we are at, what we affirm as reformed folks and it's categorically not what we're praying for we are not praying that god ignores our sin I know there's language in the Bible about forgiving and casting in the sea of forgiveness. I get all that. But we are categorically not asking God to circumvent his justice and to ignore his, his, uh, his rightful claim on us in wrathfulness, right? What we are asking for and what we're petitioning God is to, is to accrue to us the covenant blessings because of the surety who is Jesus Christ. So when we pray that God would forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins, what we are praying for, and and this just struck me, this is before the cross, right? Think about what happens immediately leading up to the cross. Christ, Christ recognizes the utter weight and burden of sin that he is going to bear on the cross. This is largely what's going on in Gethsemane. This is largely what's driving passages like Christ's, you know, um, great drops of sweat falling as blood to the ground. Like this is this is the anxiety of bearing the sins of the world and the pressure, the spiritual pressure of bearing the father's wrath that is bearing down on Christ in the garden. He, in this prayer, in this teaching is teaching his disciples to pray that God would apply that pressure to him on the cross. Exactly. Like he's asking, he's teaching them this before the cross. And then he's teaching us through that after the cross but we are praying that God would load his full wrath. And and obviously I'm saying would in a sort of colloquial sense. We're praying that God would burden Christ on the cross with the full weight of our sin and that he would take it away. And that in that we would be saved. And then that should necessarily lead us. And this maybe is the answer to my quandary earlier, but that should necessarily lead us to recognize that the the petty minuscule little debts that people owe against us, relationally, financially, whatever way it might be. Those things are nothing and they should be released. Now we had a conversation, I think it was like episode three or four. It was originally called the nuclear missile of forgiveness. I think I've changed the the uh, title to something less uh, bombastic, but we did an episode on this and I, I stand by this. I fully stand by this. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two sides of the same coin. And so we, we, when we forgive another person, I think what we are talking about here is not we don't have control whether that sort of forgiveness equation balances. So we should not look at this and be like, wow man, this person still is frustrated with me, even though, even though I've forgiven them and, and I'm trying to reconcile with them, it hasn't happened yet. We shouldn't feel that burden as though we can control their side of the equation. And I don't know that I would call it full forgiveness if it's not received. Um, that's a tough for a different day, but we should be ready and quick to extend forgiveness. We should always maintain a posture that is ready to release someone from their debts as soon as they have asked us to. Now, there are lots of, this is a, this to go back to sort of the financial um, element of this to maybe tie back into the student loan forgiveness stuff. There are all sorts of, uh, sorts of debt forgiveness programs within uh, the student loan structure. Whether those are good, bad, indifferent, whatever, there are all sorts of structures for loan forgiveness within those contexts. Every single one of them, you have to apply for. <laughs> the The government is not going to just keep track for you and then say like, well, you've met this criteria, so we're not going to keep collecting money for you. Every single one of them, you have to, in a certain sense, ask for forgiveness and then they extend that or they complete that forgiveness by extending it to you. We only control the, the stance that we hold of when we will be prepared to forgive other people. And the gospel should bring us to a place where we are quick to enjoy extending forgiveness to others. And I think that's like the the payout of this is that when we enjoy the forgiveness that the Lord has given us, then we should be quick to forgive and to enjoy extending forgiveness to others. God delights to forgive those whom he has chosen to forgive. He delights in that. That's his good pleasure. Then he's had that good pleasure from eternity past and it's actualized in time. In this prayer, not only are we asking that God would actualize that for us, or, or concretize that for us, but we are asking him to bring us to a place where we now bear that same disposition towards others who have have sinned against us or have debts against us
0: or whatever. And I think that's beautiful. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but he has to be provoked when there's anger. And so it's, that's a statement of what his normative disposition is. Let's end with some scriptures and let's end with that gospel, with that really good news. So, and I'm just going to give everybody a warning. Love ones, if you're driving a car, you got to hold on to the steering wheel for a second because <laughs> this we're going to give you some good news. This is the best news you will ever hear.
1: Make sure all this- pathways are clear of walls because you'll be running yes,
0: through them. Uh, this is your like 10-second warning. Pull the vehicle over right now. You stay away from all walls in any kind of place that you're at because you're going to want to run through them Kool-Aid Man style. This is, if you don't understand that reference, Google Kool-Aid Man on YouTube. All <laughs> right, so this is Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. This is one of like, for me, if you have to pick verses, honestly, like if I'm on my deathbed, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to say all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and proof. All this, that's all true. However, if you have like five minutes to live. Do you want somebody to read to you a genealogy? You want somebody to read from Colossians 2? I want somebody <laughs> to read from Colossians 2. So I'm not necessarily giving like you know priority to this verse, but here is the good news. This is NASB. We're, we're going right down to the technical and the literal. Here's how it goes. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I mean, that is the good news. This is the kind of thing which led the old hymn writers to pen these amazing poetic phrases, and I want to end with this. The the fact of the matter is, this petition makes it well with our souls. Yeah. And that is one of my favorite hymns. And I would submit to everybody that the zenith of that hymn is actually in the third verse, which goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like we should just we should just leave it there. We're probably not going to though.
0: It's it's good enough. Listen, come it's hang cool. out with us. Come join the Telegram chats and you can find that by going to telegram. Dot, actually, now I just totally <laughs> lost the address. This is like
1: when we used to do the phone number and we couldn't remember. Yeah,
0: well so, so here here's the problem like I, honestly, I'm so overtly focused now on this good news that anything else is really just a lesser thing, but I want people to hang out. What, how, do they, how do they find us? <laughs> really yeah. Let me help you,
1: Jesse. It's T dot me slash reform brotherhood, oh, the letter T dot M E slash reform brotherhood. Uh, if you don't have telegram, it will bring you to a place to get telegram. If you do have telegram, it'll let you spy on us first. And then you can decide if you'd like to join. I don't know why you wouldn't want to join. It's a pretty friendly group. Um, that's where you can chat about all sorts of things. If you want to start a bullet journaling club, we could talk about that. Uh, also, we do have a Patreon. Uh, we're not going to talk more about it because we're already at like an hour and 10 minutes into this 60 minute podcast, but uh, we do have a Patreon. So if you would like to contribute to the show financially and you've already met all your other obligations and have a little bit left over, you can go to patreon.com reformbrotherhood reform brotherhood. That just helps us keep the lights on and make sure that we have equipment that works and download speeds that are reasonable. And lastly, we do have a website. If you wanted to go there and you wanted, if let's say you wanted to share this episode with somebody, the best way to do that is to go to the website and the most recent episode will be listed under episodes and just send them that link. Cause that'll show them, they'll be able to listen to the episode. They'll be able to see our back catalog in a way that is structured and is able to be utilized. Uh, and then they can also check out all the other ways to get connected with the Brotherhood. So Jesse, since we are so far past our normal time, I think I'm just going to wrap it up and say, until next time, honor everyone,
0: love the brotherhood.